minds. You know, those guys stuck in an invisible box, imitating being trapped. Mimes mimic. My guest today and I talk about mimetics, the philosophical and mythical and anthropological study of imitation. But there is much more to it, as we'll see. Mimetics has been called the theory of everything, which is a lot. Listen in and see if you think it does, in fact, cover everything. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 131. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Culinary Libertarian, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. St. Patrick's Day is just two days away as of this publication, so use my link, culinarylibertarian.com slash corned beef, to find the best use of leftover corned beef, corned beef hash. And speaking of cooking, buy my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, from my blog page, culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort, or find it on Amazon, and build your own one-pot cooking skills for easy spring dishes everyone will love. My guest today is David Gronowski. David is the host of A Neighbor's Choice radio show, and has also written articles for FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, and for the American Conservative. David also hosts the Things Hidden podcast, which discusses mythology and current events, and it is in this area David is speaking with me today. I had a tech issue with this episode. It's perfectly audible. But, because of the alternative recording app, my sound isn't quite what I prefer. Tech allows for some amazing things to happen, but when it doesn't, I'm all thumbs about what to do about it. David, thanks for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Uh, it's It's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to this discussion. I am too. So, today we're going to talk philosophy specifically about René Girard and memetics. But before we do that, give us a bit of your background. Well, I, um, I've i been doing my radio program now almost, uh, I guess, getting closer to three years on FM and AM radio. It's called A Neighbor's Choice. And we're all about challenging toxic groupthink and all the different fields of knowledge, not just traditional areas of focus like the state and economics, but we also get into, you know, nutritional uh, groupthink, and we get into, you know, science, things that we're holding as sacred cows that perhaps are actually more about social phenomenon rather than the hard facts about, you know, that, that this has been proven beyond all doubt. Maybe it's actually more about wanting to be uh, protective of the icons and legends of a field who have come before those who are operating in that paradigm. 
And so all of those things, I think, are all encapsulated by the work that we do on A Neighbor's Choice. Our website's neighborschoice.com. We also have a podcast that gets more into the anthropology of things related to uh, the work of Rene Girard, and we call that podcast Things Hidden, which is a reference to one of his classic books, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. So, yeah, my background is in communication theory, and uh, I enjoy trying to explain the state not as some kind of random alien entity that came on to us and controls us, but actually something that evolved out of the religion and out of sacred uh, ritual in history. That's interesting, and I do want to say that I find the mimetics discussion fascinating. So you've written a few pieces for FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, about mimetics and about Girard. And I want to start with a quote from Girard. Quote, man is the creature who does not know what to desire, and he turns to others in order to make up his mind. We desire what others desire because we imitate their desires, end quote. There seems to be a bit of room for criticism about knowing what a desire is and if a desire means carnal or extraneous as opposed to life fulfilling. Right. Right. You have basic wants. I mean, you have basic needs, right? Like you have you don't have to teach a child to want to have food. They are instantly crawl to the mother's breast upon being born. Right. So there's there's our needs that are essential for survival that are built into our instinct. And then uh, you have shelter. You need to stay away from storm, need to stay away from hurricanes, need to stay away from snakes. So you have shelter, you have sex, you have food. But, you know, beyond some of those basic needs, you get into the area of wants where human beings, we uh, were master imitators. And uh, once we have all of our needs met, we don't really know what else to do. So we just look around at whatever people are doing and we copy them. We don't just copy what they're doing like monkey see, monkey do. We also copy what we believe they're desiring. You know, we, we, we copy what we think they're chasing after, you know. And so that's where we kind of impute some assumptions about what's what's motivating them, you know, or what what they're aspiring to be. We we call we know this. This is common sense. We call it keeping up with the Joneses, right? And that's something everybody else does, but we don't really want to think that we do it, <laughs> you know. But but that's the that's what Rene Girard is trying to get us to see is that, you know, there there's a we are interdividual creatures. So we're not just islands unto ourselves. We're actually interdividual. We're dependent on each other. You know, there's those cases you don't hear about them as much anymore of feral children who get abandoned in the wild and they're raised by beasts and stuff. And some of that stuff is sensational legends, but there's, there's some evidence that some of that did happen on occasion. And if the child was in the woods long enough at an early enough age, it's very difficult to ever get beyond that state that they're left in. You know, if they don't get enough socialization from humans at an early age, they they stay in a beastly state where they're basically walking on all fours and eating raw meat and screaming and they don't want to learn language. I mean, there's some terrifying stories you'll hear back in the old days, back when Jungle Book stuff was happening more often, you know, people would well, be on a safari or whatever. 
Now there's, and I'm going to, I'm going to bring this up, but there is in, in the reading I did about Gerard, it, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for bringing in the likes of Joseph Campbell. And you talk about feral kids. I'm thinking, well, we have we have a legend, Remus and Romulus, about that thing. And then we have a movie by Jodie Foster about the same thing. So there are I don't I want to use the word archetype, but I'm not sure. I think that might be more word than is necessary here. But it seems like there is some basic foundation of of mythology on which we apply our lives right that makes sense yes and that would be something gerard would agree with you about you know that that he would say that religion is the placenta of humanity that we needed religion religion wasn't you know the traditional view of religion and myth is that it's kind of a flight of fancy that you do to try to make sense of the world when you don't have enough facts and science on hand so the thunder crackles and you say ah and you tell a story about that. You know, it's kind of what you do uh, to just kind of tell stories around the campfire to make sense of a world that's so mysterious that you can't make sense of it. So you you create these little personifications to represent different phenomenon in the world. But what Gerard is saying is that actually, if you look at mythology, it has a similar pattern, and there's a similar structure that you can find running through all the different worlds' myths. Not that every single myth has the same structure, but you just see it over and over and over again. And that you can actually decipher a a, 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 a kind of argument from mythology that mythology is actually a cover-up. That mythology is actually concealing something. And it's concealing something that helped us. If it didn't conceal it, maybe we wouldn't be here to this day because we wouldn't have been able to use the magic trick that mythology is concealing. And that magic trick is what Rene Girard called the scapegoat mechanism. You know, human beings are so mimetic, they copy so much. And that's wonderful when it's positive. That's wonderful when things are good. But that can that can quickly turn into a negative feedback loop, a negative reciprocal escalation of extremes. Uh Animals don't have that as much. You know, when a wolf defeats another wolf for the leadership of a pack, the wolf who is defeated renders his neck open for the alpha male to strike, and the alpha male typically won't go for the kill, you know. He understands, okay, you've submitted, and that's enough. Now go back in line, and you'll get to today's dinner later if you're lucky, a little piece of scrap. But, uh, you know, humans are not the same way. You know, we have vendettas. We have blood feuds. We have family genocidal campaigns. We have, you know, wars that go on centuries, you know, past the original conflict. And so we don't we don't let things go as much. We are we we, we stew and we harbor reciprocal aggression and we don't have a way of, of basically stopping it once it gets out of control. And so Rene Girard's basically asking the question. If that's the case, then why are humans still here? How did we survive? 
because we know why wolves survived and they, they figured out a way to uh, stop their aggression from getting out of control. But the thing that makes humans better than the wolves is that we imitate so much that we're able to learn language and we're able to, to pick up tools and fire and all these different innovations that they don't have that same imitative ability to mimetically ping pong ideas off of. But it's also our greatest weakness because, again, like I said, if things are tight, if famine is a monk or if there's stress, there's tension in a community, uh, there's lack of resources, it creates a zero-sum feeling. It creates uh, stress, tension, and that can easily build into reciprocal mirror aggression, back and forth, back and forth, and that can swallow up a whole community. And so how are we still here is kind of the mystery that Rene Girard is asking. Because we know the capacity of human beings. We know that we'll do genocides. We know that we'll do, uh, you know, I kill your friend and then you kill your, my family and then whoever's left kills your neighborhood and then whoever left of that kills, you know, tries to wage war against my nation and it's just on and on and on. And mythology was a, it, mythology and religion are in the ancient world or in the archaic world before the ancient world was an attempt by humanity to contain violence, uh, to prevent profane violence, which is that out-of-control, mimetic, undifferentiation of, of aggression, in which you lose your sense of self because you're just obsessed with defeating the other. And it tried to stave that off. And that's why all the ancient cultures, and that's why all the ancient taboos were all about preserving boundaries and differentiation and that's why they were all about scared. They were scared of envy. Envy is the scariest thing in the world. The evil eye, you ever heard that old idea? They had the evil eye. You look at someone and they've got that evil eye. They want what you have. And it, it creates this curse-like thing that starts to happen. Yeah, this is yeah. stuff. Yeah. They use it in movies. And it's even like in the, uh, I think that may have been one of the, a recurring thread in, uh, in Seinfeld. Right. Get the evil eye was so that's I think that's another one of those. There's a whole there's a slew of them, but there we have we have built our society for whatever. <laughs> that's a, that's not a conversation, is there? But on on these myths that 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 convey in just one short little sentence, the evil eye, an entire vernacular of what that means and that's right so you you're, you're thinking very much in that way of you know anthropology here this is because people don't think of myth and uh superstition as distillations of collective memories baked into an acute concept or experience you know they they, they see things like they don't know how to see like it's hard for folks to wrap their minds around the idea that a myth could be a actual deep distillation of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of patterns of behavior that are being crystallized into a narrative form in a condensed format to give people the wisdom that's wanting to be communicated about what not to do and what to do in certain times. But if you look at mythology, for example, look at all the creation stories of myth. It always starts in chaos primordial chaos and and then there's a there's a kind of cartoonish violence like one god will fall on his head and 
out splits out of that split head of God pops out and something else is established or another God chops up another God and out of the fingers of that God, these people were created and out of the, the arm of that God, this ocean is created, you know, just, you know, you have this kind of symbolic, almost cartoonish Looney Tune type violence sometimes in these ancient myths, these, these creation stories. And so that indicates to us that these stories are not just about the beginning of the world, but rather the beginning of the social order, the beginning of the it, – it's as if if you start in chaos, that's a sign that perhaps you're starting in a point in history in which there's undifferentiated rivalry going on. There's undifferentiated conflict. Bad blood is mimetically ping-ponging off and it's creating a loss of self. It's creating a loss of identity. It's creating a loss of boundaries of nature and man and order, property, or whatever it is that people are using to maintain their sense of space and boundaries. And then out of that chaos, a sacrifice is made, and then order is established. And, that, and there's this idea that the order is a sociological order, but it's also tied into the cosmic order, as if this is how the lights are, are kept on. This is how the sun and the stars function, is that we have to have sacrifice. We have to have some kind of bloodletting onto a common enemy, a common monster that we can devour. That's why I think it's interesting to talk to you about this, because you're a culinary guy, you know? And I, that's, why I, that's the kind of thought that I came to my mind when I saw your work, as I was thinking, you know, the foundation of culture is that you – you're around a fire or whatever, and you're sharing stories and sharing a meal, you know? Well, that's a perfect segue for my next question, which is that one of the more challenging aspects of Gerard's work is the cannibalistic and sacrificial nature of man. Right. And then the manifestation of the state. Tell us about that progression. The manifestation of what was that? The state. Okay, yeah, so I thought you said Satan, which is kind of a synonym of the same thing. <laughs> same thing. Yeah, uh, so, um, so, so think about it. First of all, one of the best pieces of literature you can see to examine mimetic undifferentiation, because that sounds weird when people are listening to this and they've never heard of mimetic before, mimetic theory. So what is undifferentiation? What's that mean? Just go watch Looney Tunes. Whenever Bugs Bunny gets into a fight with one of his rivals, you know, and they'll get into a cloud. They get into a little dust cloud, right? Mm. And you'll see little arms and stuff reaching out of that cloud. And then at some point, Bugs Bunny will leave the cloud and the fight is still happening inside the cloud. Then he'll look at the audience with the breaking of the fourth wall. Like, do you see how ridiculous this is? You know, who's he fighting with in there? You know? And it's the idea of kind of – that's kind of what undifferentiation is, that when you become so obsessed with your rival is that the more you try to struggle against that rival, the more it ensnares you. It's like a double bind. It keeps drawing you back in more and more and more. And you try to put space between you and your rival, but it doesn't seem to work. You know, Rand Paul was viciously attacked by his neighbor because he had some yard clippings allegedly a little bit over the line of the property line. And that's the idea of undifferentiation right there. Who's line? Who? Where's the line of the property? That's why good fences make good neighbors, right? When you have space, where you have clearly delineated private contract and private property, and this is mine and this is yours, it's a little easier. It's like you can get along with your best friend for years, 
But then what after what happens if they lose their job and they have to move in with you and they like the thermostat a certain way and they leave their dishes out a certain amount of time and all these little things that you didn't know about your best buddy all of a sudden are just driving you nuts because you're saying, what the heck? I gave you a place to stay. You've got the term, the thermostat ridiculous. You've got the dishes out, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And now you go from buddies because there was space, either physical space between you or just socially away from each other. And now you're too close and now it creates conflict, right? And that familiarity breeds contempt concept is very important for understanding the problem of undifferentiation. And that's why it's important in ancient societies to have boundaries, to have, you know, no, no incest. We had to have boundaries to desire. No, no, you know, no stealing, no, you know, no killing, no bestiality, stuff like that. You have to have boundaries to maintain your sense of self because our self is so interdividually shaped that if you don't have some semblance of artificial differentiation, you lose your mind. I mean, that's like what people do in that copycat game they play in the playground all the time. Where they keep saying whatever you say and they won't stop, that'll make you lose your mind. If they don't stop, you're like, okay, enough. Okay, enough. Hey, I said stop. Hey, I said stop. Come on, man. Come on, man. And they just go on and on. You're just like, is this ever going to end? I feel like I'm losing myself in this. And that's just little tiny glimpses into this bigger, broader matrix of desire that our desires are not from ourselves. They're actually caught. We catch our desires. We catch our desires. They're almost like a contagion, you know? We don't want that car just because we want it. We want it because we saw role models. Maybe it was our dad. Maybe it was somebody on television. Maybe it was Knight Rider. Maybe it was Back to the Future or something. Or maybe it was a person at work who came in with that nice car. Or maybe it was somebody in high school. But man, that Johnny had that car that came in. Man, he was always the coolest kid around. I got to get that car one day. I'm going to get that car, you know? So you want cars because of the role models around you that model the desire for those cars. And the same thing goes for so many other things like sex. Sex is something that is uh, uh, one of those things that's a need, but it also can become a mimetically intrinsic thing. You know, you desire, oh, this person, all the guys like her. So if I get her, then I'll be the king of the of the high school. Or I'll be the king of the college, you know, because she's the most popular girl. If I have her on my arm, that means that's and the same goes for women. Women say, hey, this guy's popular. This guy's a leader. This guy is funny. He's got a bunch of people following him. This is the guy to be with. you know. And so there's this desire that you love what other people love. And, and, and we don't want to admit that is so much of what we, we are dealing with. But so how does that come to – how does that go into the state? Well, like I was saying, there had to be a reason why we are still here given the fact that when we get caught up into conflict, we can lose sight of our sense of identity and, and get lost in conflict. Our, our whole identity is shaped by our relationship to the other. And that you can see that all the time. You, know, you see a high school conflict, two guys are fighting over a girl, but before you know it, they've forgotten the girl and they've just obsessed with beating each other. And so there has to be some kind of way to get that out of control, mimetic, imitational conflict and aggression into a safe place. And so Gerard said that perhaps human beings kind of arbitrarily stumbled onto pointing fingers in the same direction. If everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else, it could be easily thought about that perhaps you can get everybody to syn synchronize their finger pointing into one safe outlet, right? Right. Because if you're everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else, 
Think about that. We just had a pandemic. Everybody's like, what's going on? Is it the mask wearers or the mask anti-mask people who are the problem? Is it Trump or is it China? Is it Joe Biden? You know, what is going on here? Is Dr. Fauci a hero? Is he a, a villain? Is Big Pharma on our side or a Big Pharma a suspect? All these different Who's to blame? Who's to blame? Where does this come from? What is happening? Is it, you know, people said, is it uh, artificial or is it man-made? And all these suspicions and fears and everybody starts finger pointing and they have to have a prevailing. Uh, what happens is in, in the ancient world, you would have a prevailing uh, accusation that would stick. You know what I mean? So it's like you know, if people are all stressed out about there's a famine or there's a plague or there's just a bad blood, people feel like they're at their wits end. And you say, you know, I think it's that person over there, that witch. Did you see how she has a different nose? Her nose is bigger than all of ours. Or do you see how that one's an albino or everybody else has a different, but this one's albino and has different eyes. Or did you see that one walks with a limp? It's disfigured. Maybe the gods hate them. Maybe it's a demon. And so anything that's an arbitrary difference that can stand out in that archaic scene could be used as an occasion to start drawing all of that mimetic aggression and tension into a singular uh, perspective, a singular direction. And you, and it becomes kind of a snowball. Like, you know, I think this person really is a problem. You say, yeah, I agree too. Did you see the way they looked at us? You know, we, we cornered them and they kind of looked at us with aggression. That that confirms my suspicion that, that they, they really are a problem. They're a trickster. And so we begin to snowball in conformity towards the direction of one person as the problem. I heard that they were uh, uh, putting a spell on people. I heard they were doing sorcery. I heard that guy or that woman was up to mischief with animals beastly you know bestiality all kinds of things that are considered to be taboo i heard they did this and then you end up at some point cannibalizing them and, the, and that's why you see all over the world this is not just a hypothetical thing when we look at the record of human society and i'm sorry if you're eating right now as you listen to this podcast but uh the record is clear <laughs> that ancient archaic societies that seems as if the ones that practice cannibalism were actually more successful than ones that didn't it's almost as if being able to devour a common enemy was a, was a kind of safety re relief that relieved the tensions of the community. Because what Gerard was saying in his understanding of when he looked at literature and, and he looked at how human beings act, it's ultimately desire is a desire for being. We want to be one with the other. And so we copy their dress, we copy their language, their social status, their friends, their mates, their cars, their dialect their fashion, their career choices, we'd copy them. Ultimately, those are tokens for what we're really craving, which is to be one, to be to be in that kind of cathartic transcendence with our neighbor. We want to consume them sometimes in a, in a, in a kind of uh, idolatrous way. And so that's actually what you see taking place in those primitive rituals of cannibalism, is that human societies are actually they're 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 finding a it's almost like when you get caught up in a sea of sameness you must devour someone who has a token of difference and a, as a, as a way of maintaining that sea of sameness it's like you have to it's like a pac-man blob that has to gobble up a ghost or something to kind of maintain its sense of sanity you know that hey we come together and we devour this vanquished foe and this and they believed you know remember if you've probably seen those ancient warriors or those primitive societies where they believe like if we consume this part of the 
victim, it becomes part of us and it gives us powers. Right. The liver, the different heart, stuff like that. And so that's what we see. That's our primordial culinary delight. One of the things that I found interesting, and it's it's a perspective that wouldn't immediately come to mind, that in the cultures practicing cannibalism, the sacrificed, for lack of a better phrase, and to move along, looked forward to it. It was it was not a thing to be feared, but a thing to be celebrated. It was a joyful rejoicing event because the, there was a individual contribution to the betterment of the community. That's my redistillation of the things I read, but it was it, it made at least understanding it possible, whereas by today's metrics, you think about cannibalism and probably the first response is revulsion. And that's probably not a bad response, but there's things about it we don't understand right. that, that made it probably last for as long as it did. So one of the things that You've mentioned it. So we have my neighbors moved in with me and we have conflicting desires in in my living room, in the space of my house. Those are probably things that we can settle, find some way to reach an accord so we don't reach what would be Gerard's Gerard's expected resolution to conflict, which is war. So you brought up the concept of scapegoating. I think we've probably covered that, although there are ways now I think we're seeing scapegoating, and I want your opinion on this, is cancel culture a version of scapegoating, and is it intended to set an equilibrium? Because not everyone agrees that Pepe Le Pew deserves to be canceled, or is it now being used to maintain disharmony? Well, that's a, a great question. And it's um, you can obviously see parallels between the cancel culture of our time and the scapegoat phenomenon that Gerard finds hidden behind mythology. And so he's like a detective. He's looking at all these different mythologies. He's looking at sacrificial rituals, and he's seeing some clues that there's a scapegoat mechanism type phenomenon that humans mechanistically fell into as a as a habit of dealing with bad blood, that bad mimetic desire. You know, when you were talking about the the cannibalism, you know, one example in our contemporary time that gives us a clue that cannibalism and the sacred cannibalism is actually about desire is what you find in today's context when you'll see a freak example. Every now and then you'll hear an example of some crazed person who devoured their lover or something. I mean, you're just like, good God, this is still happening. And it happens in Germany. There's one in America, I think, recently. And they cook their neighbor and they eat them. And you're like, what in the world is going on? And oftentimes they'll, you'll, they'll interview these people who've lost their mind and they'll say, I wanted to be him. I wanted to consume them. I wanted to be totally one with their flesh. So that's getting into that weird thing that I was just describing from a theoretical standpoint that 
cannibalism is this hypermimetic desire. It's almost like you're competing for scarce resources. You're competing with another person for food, and all of a sudden you end up so obsessed with beating the neighbor, you end up eating the neighbor. And that's we can't even imagine that today. But that's the record of history. The record of history shows, and in, in these cultures that are more remote, they still practice some little semblances, apparently, of some little, I mean, again, I don't know if it's still happening today. It may be where there's some cannibalism still going on. So humans don't want to look at that. We want to believe, you know, that is over there. That had nothing to do with me. The social psychological phenomena behind cannibalism has nothing to do with my contemporary times. But then we're obsessed with people, right? And then we hear stories like John Lennon being assassinated by a guy. And what does he say? He says, I wanted to be him. I killed him because I wanted to be him, you know? And then we know about these stalker fans that follow these celebrities and they're freaky and they're so obsessed with them that they want to become them. They want to be one with them. And that can lead to, that's what Gerard said, the line between adoration and murder is very thin. You know, we adore something so much we want to become we want to become it and we want to supplant it at some point because it it has got our desire so transfixed and so mesmerized that we just want to totally gobble it up. But that's where you get that cannibalism. That's the primordial scapegoat mechanism is devouring maybe a, a, a overthrown alpha who was kind of like, you know, the alpha of a, like, you know, they see they've, they've shown chimpanzees were doing, they were cannibalizing the alpha that was the leader of the pack of the of the troop or whatever of chimpanzees. After he's dethroned, they defeat him and they were like eating him and stuff. So there's maybe there's some primordial, you know, proto ritual type behavior in the chimpanzee community about that. So 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 where do you, so how does this get to the state? The state is this sacred transcendence. It's this thing that binds us together. The word religion in the Latin means to bind together. So we have to think of the of religion and the state as almost like synonyms. It's a story and it's a set of rituals and it's a process ultimately about the scapegoat mechanism that binds a community together. We are bound together because we're not that guy. You know? We're not the guy we just ate. We're bound together because we ate him together. <laughs> and he was a problem. You know, he was a trickster. We devoured him and now we're safe. And this stuff happens all the time. You'll see it like in Indonesia. There was the uh, Indonesian genocide in the 60s where they were going after anybody who was a suspected communist and it was ethnically tied together. And there's a movie about it called The Act of Killing. And the people who they're still alive, some of them who participated in the uh, the genocide behavior that took place in Indonesia. And they said in, when they're reenacting some of the things they did to the people that they were pursuing – they said we would drink the blood of our of our victims just to maintain our sanity. It's like we had to drink the blood of our victims we would slay to maintain our sense of self. So there you go. I mean, I mean, th- you would think Gerard directed the movie, you know, because it's exactly what I just said. Theoretically, is what's going on behind these rituals of cannibalism. But ritual cannibalism is not the only type of sacrifice. Of course, we have other examples of the scapegoat mechanism that are that are turned into these rituals of sacrifice and. Gerard suggests that the king, the role of the office of the monarch, was actually itself originating in a scapegoat who was – because, you know, think about how in those rituals of, of sacrifice, sometimes they'll parade the victim around as a king, exalt them, and then tear them down and devour them or kill them afterwards. Like uh, 
you know, look at the stories like you hear even in, in, in 1920s America where they would take an African-American man, they would accuse him of something, of some kind of taboo, a, a, a rape or something like that, murder. And then there's literally – this is in America. So we think we're so far removed from these Saturnalia rituals, but we're doing this in 1920s America in a more grotesque, overt form than we would imagine, where we're, we, they take this African-American, they parade him around the room – I mean around the neighbor, the, the community like he's a mock king. They put a robe around him like he's a king, and then they would kill him and torture him. And then people would get relics of his body afterwards – so are we really that far away from that? Are we really that far removed from the origins of our culture, the origins of the sacred, that we need to sacrifice one for the greater good? See, that's actually a line from Caiaphas, the guy who led the charge to murder Jesus. He said, it is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. And that is the heart of mythology. That's the heart of the primitive sacred. And that's the heart of the state. The state evolved the modern state is a vestige of that exact phenomenon. It is better that one die than the whole nation perish, meaning the nation is that religion, that religio, to bind together. We cannot be bound together if one does not die for the greater good. If we don't sacrifice one, and you, and you are right, in some cases, there's such a sacred honor to being a sacrifice that it was esteemed to be a sacrifice. You know, that you would take it, your, your daughter has been selected to be in the Hunger Games, or your your son has been selected to be in the Hunger Games. I mean, they did that, remember that story, have you ever seen that uh, mummy of the woman that was preserved, she's a 15-year-old girl in the, uh, I think it was the Inca community, and she was frozen perfectly in shape as if she's, it looks like she's almost frozen, you know, a few days ago, you know? Probably. Yeah, and she's a mummy, and she's fully intact. You see her hair and everything, and, and you know she was a girl who was adorned with all kinds of religious esteem because she was selected to be a candidate for sacrifice for the gods for the or, or the ancestors in some cultures, which are, again, kind of a stand-in for gods, the same thing. But see, that's what Gerard is saying, is that after we sacrifice a scapegoat, when we, when we attack a common enemy, we feel total relief and total catharsis. And we believe because it's resolved our conflict with one another. We were at each other's throats, and now we've found a common enemy that we can unite around. Just look at the left. You've got so many factions. you got this group says we're the ultimate victim. This group says, no, we are the ultimate victim. And what binds them together is the common enemy of Donald Trump. And they've tried to preserve it now by saying that we need to have a domestic war on terror to any of the Trump sympathizer so that's their that's the sequel to the donald trump scapegoat mechanism that was binding that 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 community of different people vying for power and vying for sacred victimhood and that they need that common enemy to keep themselves bound together without that common enemy they they fall apart and they devolve into schisms in which they're constantly purging and scapegoating each other i mean there was a lgbtq uh pride parade that happened in New York a few years ago, and they said, we will not allow cisgender drag queens to participate in the parade because they were expropriating the, 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 the identity of true trans people, right? And so they were not invited. But just a few years ago, the drag community was always celebrated as totally part of the community of the LGBT, but not in this community. They had to be purged because they were violating a taboo that they had constructed for their shared religio, their, their shared binding together. And so you see this mechanism all around us today. 
And the reason why we see it, Gerard says, is because the Bible is actually undermining mythology. It swims in mythology, but then it undermines it. It swims in the world of mythology, but it, it counters it. It's not because if, if you totally counter it, no one would understand how to get out of it. And so the Bible is kind of like working within the framework of myth, but it's actually undermining it. Because when you look at myth, again, it's a concealment of this scapegoat mechanism. When you look at the gods, they have characteristics of arbitrary differentiations. One of them walks with a limp. Another one's half beast, half animal, half human, which, again, you can see how that could be a symbol of, of an original accusation of bestiality. You know what I mean? I saw that man with a with a, uh, a, a a horse that turns into whatever what is it the centaur or minotaur that's the horse man, and that and so you you encode this kind of bestial symbol that represents what was the taboo accusation from that primordial origin story of that of that god. But uh, but but you know you look at Zeus. Zeus is the god of thunder. They recently discovered on the mountain where Zeus was historically a legendarily from. It's not Mount Olympus. It's another mountain where he originally came from, they say. But they found evidence of a of a teenage boy's body sacrificed at the top of that mountain. So, you know, there's Zeus. Gerard says we don't make up our, our deities. We deify our victims. So when we sacrifice somebody, they create such relief amongst the community psychologically that we they go from being a villain and a monster to suddenly feeling like, good Lord, these people, this saved our life. This is a hero. They actually must have come down to us to teach us a lesson and allow us to sacrifice them or to eat them so that we would learn how to preserve our society from chaos in a time of tension or a time of famine or plague. And so now the community takes away from that moment and they say, hey, Maybe we need to do this ritualistically every time we have another problem. Every time food is short or tension is stressful, we select a victim to offer as a sacrifice to the original visitor of the community who was himself or herself a god who came down to teach us what to do when times are stressful. And so that's how the god goes from a monster to a savior. And that's why all ancient mythological gods, if you read their earlier stories, like in Greek mythology, they start off with trickster stuff. They're doing mischievous stuff. They're having sex with uh, mortals. They're shape-shifting. They're tricking people. They're doing all kinds of naughty things. But then in their later stories, they're depicted as salvific, as saving people. And usually they save people from like they save they 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 bless a war effort because the people preserve they, they offered a sacrifice to that god but the god is actually just a projection of the human community the god is a symbolic quarantining of the guilt of what they've done that we had to do it because the god you know it, they were different than us they came and they taught us a lesson that's what our ancestors taught us there was a time, once upon a time, where our ancestors had a plague, and a strange god appeared amongst them, and he's taught us certain things. And then one day, we saw them on the top of a cliff, and we came to greet him, and he flew off into the sky. No, actually, you threw him off, but they don't remember it that way. But they remember as he flew off into the sky, and every now and then, whenever there's a certain uh, you know, harvest season, we often are a little sacrificed, maybe a human, maybe an animal, off that same cliff in commemoration of that God who taught us how to save ourselves and to preserve our society through sacrifice, see? 
So that's where you get the connection between myth as a concealment of the sacrificial ritual. And so what Gerard is saying is that the Gospels help us see what's going on with myth, which then allows us to try to move away from scapegoating. Does that make sense? It does, and it's going to lead into this. Uh, I did mention Joseph Campbell a little bit ago. Uh, In his interview with Bill Moyers in the Power of Myth series, Campbell pointed out, and you have in some of your writings, that the Christian ritual of communion symbolizes excuse me, symbolizes cannibalism, but also rebirth and possibly, as you've explained it, a catharsis. What is Gerard saying about rebirth, or does he use a different word to get to that point? Right. That's a great question. And 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 you know the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and the passage that Jesus says, eat my body, he's using the language like gnaw on the bone. So he means it in a very graphic way. So you might say, what is this about? What is this ritual? What does this have to do? Is this just another myth? Well, here's the thing. It's revealing what all the other myths were were kind of uh, encoding into symbol. You know, he's talking about something in a very, let's say, gritty, realistic form, Jesus is, because he's trying to call us to our attention back to the primordial origins of, of sacred violence. When you hear sacred violence, think statism today and think the culture of statism, because it's not just the state. It's not just that that's a problem. It's the culture that wants this kind of thing to deal with its problems. You see what I mean? That Mm -hmm. we have to sacrifice the drug dealer because we have our own little issues, our own little addictions. Maybe we're addicted to work. Maybe we're addicted to bad food. Maybe we're addicted to, uh, you know all kinds of other little uh, hidden vices, prescription drugs that we get from our doctor. And so we have all these little private failings, and we cast all of our sins onto a scapegoat, and we call that the drug dealer or the drug user. And we send them into the belly of a living death called prison, in which they are treated like a violent monster just because they did something nonviolent that we find an affront to our own little uh, foibles, too much of a mirror to our own stuff. We do this all the time. The sex worker is cast out because a scapegoat, because of our own, you know, you know, guilt that we feel or our own fear of, of allowing that to happen. Because we always say, well, well, if we allow sex work to be legal, it'll spread all over the place. It'll bring crime. It'll bring contamination. It'll bring the whole destruction of our community. Well, that's the same thing the ancient sacred communities thought so, too. You know, they always said, well, we can't allow this. We have to sacrifice this person who's broken the taboo because the gods demand it. Because if we allow this to go unpunished, we'll go into chaos. The gods. So, so social. When you, here's a cheat sheet for mythology. Whenever you see like the wrath of the gods, that's a social. That's a social projection of the wrath of the crowd losing its mind in uh, runaway envy and desire and conflict. So. So uh, I kind of lost where we were going with it. Oh, but the Eucharist. Yeah, so the Eucharist. So here's the thing about with that. What Jesus is trying to do is get you to see, okay, so you're going – so at the heart of your problems in life is ultimately a desire for consuming others around you. Now, we don't do it physically anymore like that, but we do it in our relationships. We consume people. We consume people in our conf, in our work. We consume people in our relationships we we always want to win. We always want to devour. We always want to, uh, you know, I'm not saying always, but I'm just saying that's our, our our predilection when we're not being positive in our mimetic, you know, desire, when we're being 
rivalrous. We're always trying to one up or have the advantage or have the leverage. And, and so we copy and we compete and we're competing with uh, different people in our lives that we want to kind of uh, one up or become the best at and, and certain things that they're doing. And that ultimately is a desire for being. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you know, eat me. If you need to take out your, your frustrations on somebody, don't take it out on your neighbor. Take it out on me. You know, blame me. You know, blame me. Put your, put your uh, you know, take your wrath out on me. Devour me. Consume me. And the thing about consuming the role model of Jesus is Jesus offers a role model of nonviolence. So when you consume his being, you're supposed to be consuming his example of nonviolence. You're becoming more nonviolent by becoming what he is. So he does not have aggression when he deals with his opponents. He, he does, he does nonviolence, which dismantles their mimetic rivalry. See, we don't have that. We, we are, we're not like that. If people mess with us, we don't, we, no, I've got to have self-defense. You know, but Jesus shows nonviolence as a means of breaking the endless mimetic rivalries that are always consuming our attention and time and efforts and resources. And so the 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 Eucharist is kind of a calling to the origins of human society, but kind of a satire on it, saying when you take the Eucharist, you're basically admitting that yes, we humans are basically dirty cannibals at the heart of it. The way we act, the way we treat people when we're not acting the way we should, it is ultimately a desire to consume and to bind ourselves together by a collective consuming of some scapegoat that we can blame. Maybe it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, or maybe it's those other people. It's got this gender, that race, this country we have to bomb. We have to consume, consume, devour, devour. It's the Russians. No, it's the Chinese. You know, there's always something we have to gobble up and defeat or else we're not going to be able to be alive. We're going to be ceased to exist. And maybe there's a truth Sometimes, you know, where there is a real threat, there is a real war or something. But most of the time, this is something that we're doing as a kind of social ph phenomenon to preserve our own relationship to one another rather than an actual real existential threat. Uh, and so what Jesus is doing in that, that, that ritual is he's allowing us to ritually kind of satirize our own mundane bad behavior both individually with our relationships and our social life, but also collectively in our society in the broader picture of how we consume. The state offers us sacrifices all the time. They have so many sacrificial scapegoats, it's hard to keep count. Politicians are scapegoats, right? We elect them. Hey, you're the king. We tear you down, scandalize you, send you out. We, we, we have, uh, Police officers are scapegoats. You know, we, we, we hire them to do our dirty work for us. We hire them to arrest people for having a broken taillight or missed child support or, 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 you know, driving without a license. And then when things get ugly because someone moves the wrong way or, or, or talks back to the officer and there's a physical conflict, someone loses their life, we say, hey, the police officer is the problem, not the people who made the law that put them in a situation they shouldn't have been into in the first place. Uh, you know, so we, we use the police officer as a scapegoat. We use the soldier as a scapegoat. We have to send our soldiers to go die for the preservation of the nation so that we have the right to vote. How many times have you heard that? We send our boys, they go fight those wars so you have the right to be an American. You have a right to vote. What? How does the vote have something to do with them fighting in a war? You know, because your freedoms are over there. 
Right. Well, we can understand that for maybe World War II, maybe, but not for like the Iraq War, but they tie that in all the time. They're over there so that you have the right to vote. So Saddam Hussein was going to take my right to vote. But see, they're tying. What is the right to vote? I like to use the word voting right, R-I-T-E, because that voting right is what preserves the lifeblood of the religio, the the nation that binds it. We are bound together by this ritual of voting and that voting which is the lifeblood of the state is tied somehow to the actual physical shed blood of the soldier who volunteers his life as a sacrifice for the state's interests so this is a vestige of of, of ritual uh, religion imitation seems an apt word to describe what gerard means when he writes that we copy each other god says in genesis and correct me if i get this part wrong uh, he tells us to imitate him. Do you think Gerard is suggesting that man imitating man is divine? It can be when we're when we're imitating the right role models. You know, if we're imitating Jesus and people who imitate Jesus, then we're we're doing a divine thing because Jesus offers. He, he doesn't, you know, every other person in history, and again, we're not, we don't have to get into claims of theology here. We can just look at this as anthropologically focused as possible, because it always scares people when you talk about religion in a theological sense. They get terrified. I don't believe he's this way, that way, this way. It gets really angry. But that's why, you know, you're dealing with something that strikes at the core of, of what we're dealing with here. Whether he's, if I tell people if he was just a man, it's even more miraculous of the impact he's had on history. <laughs> Because it's pretty amazing to see the footprint of what he said was going to happen after he introduced what he what I call the personhood revolution of Jesus into history, which is getting us to deconstruct the mythic narratives that we use to conceal and justify the collective violence that we do to preserve our sense of self and our community. And so that's so. So, yes, we, we should imitate role models. And I'm not saying that the only role model comes from Jesus. There's other role models around world religions that exemplify nonviolence and non, not, you know, disengaging from tit for tat, petty conflict. That's obviously you see that around the world. But I think it's most manifested uh, in in a complete form in the historical person of Jesus and what he did. He he really intentionally stepped into the scapegoat mechanism. And perform the role of the scapegoat so that we can see the sausage making of the scapegoat mechanism. And that once we see it, we can't unsee it. That's why he said, remember you were talking about, well, we, I mentioned Satan earlier. Satan was the meaning, is it, it, it's a title. It's not a little red man with horns. Satan was a, a title that means accuser or special prosecutor. Like when you had... Robert Mueller, special prosecutor Robert Mueller. That was a, so we use the special prosecutor is like a, a modern term for what the accuser was called, Satan, the accuser. So when you had, when Jesus said, Behold, I see Satan fall like lightning, he's saying that in the old mythic world that I've been talking about this time in this discussion together, in the old mythic world, the idea of accusation belonged to the world of the gods, right? The gods, Zeus demands that you die because you've broken the taboo, or Odin demands your blood for the preservation of the world, right? And so when that is an accusation, you 
have violated a taboo or you have been chosen as a vessel of sacrifice. And therefore, we must sacrifice you to preserve our world. And what Jesus is saying when he says, I see Satan fall like lightning, he's saying that that idea of accusation and sacrifice will no longer stay in the realm of the transcendent. It will no longer stay in the realm of the ultimate good after what I do in history happens. From then on, it will start to be seen as something that is profane, that is something that is on the earth. It's not above us. It doesn't bind us together. And that's exactly what we see today. Because what made sacrifice so essential is that it kept people preserved. That we could always let off our attention into a common punching bag. And without that, we would have to find another way of getting along. And that's what Jesus was trying to model. He was saying self-sacrifice rather than sacrifice your neighbor. Self-sacrifice. Give up something of your life before you have the audacity to sacrifice and gobble up your neighbor. You're afraid that he's doing a drug? Well, self-sacrifice your fear of that drug rather than sacrifice your neighbor into a cage for life for a nonviolent addiction that you're scared of. Are you sacrificed? Are you, are you scared of your neighbor owning a gun like an AR-15 because you're afraid that they might use it in a violent way? Self-sacrifice your fear of that potential thing rather than sacrifice your neighbor by making a law to put them in a cage for owning the AR-15. So Jesus shifts the conversation away from sacrifice of an other to self-sacrifice. And that's so important because to this day, we think when I say the word sacrifice to you, you don't think of the old version of it. You don't think, okay, who are we going to offer up as a sacrifice? No, you think of what can I give up of my life? I can sacrifice my, you know, you know, someone's driving in traffic and you, I'll sacrifice, you go ahead in front of me. Or, you know, uh, you know, so you sacrifice or someone, you know, you give way to another. You allow, you allow for non, non-rivalrous interactions to occur because you give way. It's not passive submission. It's just self-sacrifice. You're, st- you're stopping the, the uh, hunt for a scapegoat by saying, you know what, I'm just going to like sacrifice that need to blame you or to accuse you, or to, you know, be aggressive towards you, and I'm going to pull back from that, and I'm going to allow you to model the pulling back that I'm exhibiting in my own personal example. And that creates this counter-positive mimetic contagion when we do this, in which we can solve things nonviolently through cooperation, through markets, through cultural institutions, nonprofits, foundations, where we can create Catharsis. We can create transcendence by by practicing and embodying mimetic desire, which gives space for the other, which loves our neighbor as we would like to be loved ourselves. So you have to love yourself, and then from that proper love of yourself, you can love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you hate yourself, you'll you'll treat your neighbor in a bad way. You know. It's. Yes, I understand. It seemed I was thinking that collectively, because it's it's the only easy way to talk about it, we collectively seem to have abandoned, surrendered, perhaps is a better word, our own self-sacrifice to the state, letting them do it for us, and at the same time, Certainly in, I think, 
contemporary society, we are so factionalized that anything outside of the norm, and the norm is an increasingly narrow space, so a plastic potato now has to be corrected. A, a cartoon skunk has to be corrected. It's gotten so bad that the publisher of Dr. Seuss has self-sacrificed half a dozen books because I'm not really even sure I understand why. Right. So it's so, so many, it, it can get deep fast and I don't necessarily want to go there in this episode. There's there's lots of ersatz gods, for lack of a better phrase, in place of genuine. Uh, well, we haven't really mentioned the word worship, but I think it does apply in in the sense of you know worship. Generally, you go on Saturday or on Sunday, and you you worship to to the Lord. But I think sometimes what gets missed in the idea of worship uh, on a more personal note is also worship of the self. We say that now and it it sounds arrogant and selfish and how dare you worship yourself. But if you are in if you view yourself as a child of God. Doesn't that seem the first right place to worship? To worship yourself? Yes. It well, could get worship, out of hand, and then, then yeah. that would be bad. So I, there's yeah. there's limits, I think. Well, you know, it, it's almost like what is the self? You know, and there's so much of what we think of as ourself is constructed by those around us. You know, and you can watch. Like I've seen friends that like you see them hanging out with their father, and they're moving their neck, and the, someone's telling a story, and they've got their their head tilt to the exact angle that their father is as he's as they're both listening to the person telling the story and neither of them know that they're doing that it just they're they're leaning in they've got a certain half grin their their neck is tilted just at the same angle and they don't know it it's so mimetically absorbed just little things like that but also the desires that your father or mother or grandparents or your friends from school or your spouse or your siblings or books that you read all of those desires are being spin are being entangled into the things. They're like hooks, like millions of little hooks that have got their little hooks to various degrees in your heart, pulling you along in different directions for things that you want to be like and the way you want to be known and what you want to be told about, you know, what you want people to talk about you when you're gone, like the story that you lived, who you are as a person is kind of a story constructed by a lot of other stories around you. So I'm not yeah. saying there is no self, but it's kind of hard to see where it actually is. So if well, you're gonna if you're gonna worship yourself, you're worshiping in some sense. You know, worship means to be in awe of, and I think we should be in awe of the fact that we're made in the image of the infinite. And I mean, that's a theological claim here, and I'm trying to stay within the anthropological. Right, claim. and and I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of rabbit holes to explore, but and that's just it's it was an idea, and it seems. Yeah. It seemed a good response to what you're saying, and I, I right. wanna, but I do want to push back a little bit 
on Gerard's quote. And I keep saying his name two different ways because I see it and then I think about the chef Michel Gerard. So I'm not sure if yeah. it's Gerard or Gerard, but anyway. Yeah. Um, he wrote, uh, we desire what others desire because we imitate their desires. Now, that, that seems a little self-fulfilling to me. Right. It's, that seems to suggest that the observer knows his counterpart's desire and our man can know the heart of that other person. Now, he may not know, but is grasping as he sees his counterpart grasping. Does it matter if our man is copying someone who doesn't know his own desires? Well, oftentimes that's what it's, that's what's happening, right? Because, you know, someone got a haircut a certain way and they don't know why they got it, but they got it. And it looks exactly like everybody else. And then somebody else gets the same exact haircut because they saw that person having it, too. So, yeah, a lot of it is. You're imitating and you don't know you're imitating and you're imitating someone who didn't know where they got that imitation from, too. So there's a lot of misrecognition of where these things come from. Yeah. So, I mean, you have you have I mean, look at like the the, the example a lot of people who study mimetic theory use is, you know, you look at toddlers and there's a bunch of toys in the room and one picks up one doll. The other kid instantly wants that doll. It doesn't matter if there's two exact dolls. There's another doll. It's exactly the same. Same model, same size, same color, same condition. Play with that one. No. The child is magnetically absorbed into wanting to grab that doll from the other. And then once they grab it, the first kid didn't really care. He was just playing with it. He didn't really care. Lackadaisical. But now that the other child has desired what he has, now he really wants it. So he pushes back and says, no, 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 no. And there you go. There's mimetic desire in a nutshell. Why did the kid pick up the doll in the first place? Who knows? But at some point it happens, and then somebody else catches that desire, and then the person that first didn't really care about it, now he's caught the desire of his rival who's grabbing for that same object. And that happens with adults, but we're too we're too uh, prideful to admit it, you know, that we, we, we are vying for the social status, vying for popularity, vying to be the most woke vying to be the most uh whatever astute the most libertarian i am the true libertarian no i am the true libertarian no this you know so we're always trying to compete we're always trying to one up and become you know what we believe to be the ultimate you know object of desire really we kind of covet other people to desire us we want them to desire us but not too close it's like the example of a guy who creates a startup and he's a charismatic ceo and he's got his own philosophy. He's got his own uh, guiding principles that he's always espousing to his uh, company. And the intern comes on, and he's imitating that CEO very much so. And when the CEO sees that, he says, there you go. That's a good young fella or lady. You know, that person, you're doing the right thing, kid. Keep it up. You know, try to read my book. Try to follow my philosophy, investing and thinking about business. And, you know, this just makes me so proud to see people imitating what I'm doing. But then imagine that that intern stays a few more years and eventually they're in a, an executive position. They're a vice president. And the founder, he's not so hot anymore, you know. he's Maybe he's lost a step. Maybe he's got caught up in trying to compete with rivals in business rather than being the true innovator he used to be. And now that little guy who was once just an intern is now a little closer to him. And now, again, there's that Rand Paul neighbor again, you know? It's close proximity again, right? See what I mean? That's a physical proximity of you've got, lim you've got limbs hanging over my property line. But in the role of the, of the CEO to the intern who's now a VP, that's a close proximity of status. 
And now as he sees that VP still imitate his creative juices and his philosophy, and he gets affirmation after affirmation, say, wait a second. This guy's stealing my thunder. He's stealing my very existence. You know, you don't say it that way, but you feel that way. You know, there's something. What does this guy do? He's he's copying me. He's he's taking credit for stuff that I did. And he's the new hot shot in town. And this guy's getting all the glory and I've lost my step. What do I have if I'm not this guy? If I'm not that guy that the guy wanted to be, but now that guy is being it better than I am, then what am I good for? And, that, and that's where you get conflict. That's where you get rivalry. But you were talking about like the, you know, you made a really good point about today's culture, which is that it's all this rivalry, but it's all about self-flagellation, right? That's, you know, Dr. Seuss, we're going to cancel these books. They're not going to cancel Joe Biden for 50 years of mass bombings and mass incarceration. He gets a pass. But Dr. Seuss, a children's book, will sacrifice that symbol as a symbol of oppression. You see what I mean? And so there's all this self-flagellation that is the operation for basically attaining social power in our culture. And I do think that that's unleashed partially because of what Jesus did in history, which is he opened up the sausage-making of scapegoat violence. He opened up the hierarchies that were mediated by that sacrificial violence, and he allowed us to see a little closer what we're doing to one another. And so now um, people are still trying to sacrifice, but now they're trying to sacrifice as if they're the Jesus, as if they're the messianic avenger of the oppressed, as if they're the one. So Jesus healed the leper. He healed the outcast. He, healed, he, he reconciled the prostitute. He, he was always dealing with the misfit, the scandal, the scapegoat, the, the, the outsider. He was always bringing them into right relationship with the people who were in the more uh, privileged situation. And what the, the modern left is, which dominates the West, is it's a hyper-Christianity. So it's saying, hey, we're not just going to heal the leper. No, we're going we're gonna, to you know, throw acid on you as equity because the leper had to spend years being the leper. And now we're going to not just give them your job, but we're going like, to make you have a suffering condition as well to like balance the scales. That's what equity is all about. It's not about equality. It's not about you and the leper get to have the same treatment when you have a meal together. No, you must be put into the earth. You know, you must be put on the ground and, and subjugated or, or you know, kind of disciplined or I don't know what other word you want to use, shamed, canceled, uh, ostracized as a way of balancing out the past uh, power differences that were uh, in place between the leper and you or the the outsider or the prostitute or whatever it is that is the the sacred object of victimhood today. So because right. because Jesus opened up the sausage making of how we make our collective victims and our collective scapegoats, we see scapegoating everywhere. We see victims everywhere. But we can't agree on who's the ultimate victim and we can't agree on who's the oppressor. And so everybody's constantly trying to take up the martyr's perch of the cross in their own identity so that they can assume the moral authority to be the ultimate good, to be the ultimate salve, the, the messiah, the messiah. You know what I mean? So, so you have people, Oh, I have to atone. For, I saw John Brennan. I have to atone for my white maleness, but he doesn't have to atone for his torture, his surveillance, his drone strikes against 16 year old kids who are American citizens. No, I just have to atone for my whiteness and my maleness. <laughs> You see what I mean? So people are always self-flagellating to, to try to get social power back. 
you think? I think what's happening is everyone is claiming, I'm going to use a funny phrase, dual citizenship. They are both victim and oppressor at the same time. Right. And that seems to be what's going on. Right. Uh, I wanted one last little question, then I have another segment I want to go into. So imitating for pleasure, that's an easy enough concept to grasp. That's not, I mean, we get that. How does the mimetics apply to something a little less obvious like economics? Well, that's just look at the stock market. You know, you have people buy, they, 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 you know, that's where I think Austrian economics fits nicely with this. Are you a fan of Austrian economics? Yes, I am. Yeah. It's subjective. Desire is subjective. But yeah, that that makes sense. And so I think mimetic, mimetic, the mimetic theory is just looking at that subjective desire on a little bit more granular detail. So we, we, we get lost in a craze. We get lost in bubbles or stock markets. We get, you know, tulip mania, right? We catch these desires collectively and we create bubbles. We create, uh, you know, these uh, stock market surges. You get these uh, different, um, you know, uh, different stocks that become big bets. And you're like, why is this? Why? You know, like, look at the GameStop. That's an example of that. GameStop turns into this big monster stock based on on a symbolic narrative that they wanted to imbue into the memory of, of GameStop as a symbol of the 90s, as a symbol of the old economy that was being supplanted by the COVID stuff, right? And so people were buying into this stock as a way of, of, of signaling their support for a kind of uh, disavowal of the, you know, corporatist Wall Street establishment and their attempts to try to, you know, always keep the game in their favor. Where, so we talked about those two kids. One kid has the toy, the other kid has to have that exact specific toy. And so the, the toddler lacks the ability to discriminate that the toy next to it is exactly the same. But no, 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 everybody's got kids. It's <laughs> yeah. exactly what happens. They know that. So where where does it come that this... This imitation, this desire now has this check of subjectivity to it. So people are so um, uh, Mises subject your your preferences and my preferences in nearly all things are going to be different. And how is it that I see you doing something, but I discriminate that that's the thing I do not wish to do? Where that seems a learned behavior. So I, how, how does, does Gerard account for that? Account for what? The uh, the refuse to desire, the refusal to oh, imitate. Yeah. Well, that's still, that's still a way of imitating your neighbor. So if you go to a high school and everybody is wearing a country-style attire, then you will, will say, well, you know what? I have nothing to do with that stuff, and you wear, like, gothic attire. And you become a goth. So are you really, you know, choosing the goth thing because you're differentiating yourself? Or are you actually copying your neighbor because you're looking to your neighbor what they desire and you're just mere, you're doing the opposite? You're still copying them. You see what I mean? Right. Does that make sense? Everybody's everybody's driving a pickup truck, 
And so you pick the Porsche because you want to stand out to make sure that you let everybody know that you're a rugged individual. But really what you're doing is you're signaling to them based on the signal they gave to you before. So they all signaled an interest in this object. So you, you try to make it look like you're totally independent from them, but you're just kind of, you're still looking for them as your cue as to what to do. You're just going to do the opposite. Everybody's driving skateboards. I mean, everybody's playing with skateboards. So you're the guy who likes trick bikes or everybody likes Star Wars and your click. And you're like, well, I like Star Trek. That's my thing. You're like, okay, really? Are you doing that? Or are you just trying to stand out to make it look like you're the, you're the cool kid who's on the, you know, you've got the thing that's different from everybody else. And, and so there's this weird, again, that's that relationship between we want to imitate, but we also want to do certain things that will kind of maintain our sense of self that we are distinguished and different. And that's why, and that's an important thing. Differentiation is important. And that's why if you have a business or a family, it's good to create distinct roles that each person plays uh, just to keep rivalry at bay. Because when you have overlapping tasks and overlapping expectations and overlapping, you know, uh, roles that you're supposed to perform, that's where conflict brews. That's where things start to get a little bit messy because, again, that internal mediation of when there's no boundaries between you, that's where rivalry starts to breed. That's where, uh, you know, you know, there's that saying, uh, again, that, uh, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. And, uh, and, you know, that's that's kind of so you want to have certain things. They could be arbitrary. But you want to have certain things in place if you have a business that everybody has their own specific role. You know, that you have this guy, your job is to do this. You, This is only you. We are all relying on you for this special outcome to happen in our company. And I know it's hard. I, it's confusing when you have a big company and you've got like all these, you know, overlapping roles where you can't just have one accountant for a giant company or something. But right. I think in that case, maybe one model I was thinking about is that, I don't know, you know, I, I'm not a management expertise expert or whatever, but maybe perhaps you would create like little mini teams where you have an accountant and then a man, you know, a marketing guy or something like that. And you, and you create these like little, little mini cities, little mini nations so that all the accounts are not all hanging out in the same spot that maybe they're able to, you know, be broken away into a, as a role. Like there's one accountant and then there's a marketing guy and there's a guy and that's like a little unit that hangs out with each other and they work together. I don't know. There's different ways you can think about trying to create space, but it's very important if you want people to think critically to try to avoid contagious envy and covetousness and stuff like that, because that stuff is very, very hard to draw people away from once they get caught up in it. Look at the left and right. The more they compete, the more they look the same, you know, don't tell them that. Yeah. You ask them that (laughs) they say, Oh, I'm farther apart than ever, you know, but the left does a city of uh, a city. uh, They do, uh, you know, nationwide uh, riots. And then the right does their, uh, their capital riot, you know, and it's like back and forth, back and forth, you know, the same old thing. We're going to grow government. Well, we're going to grow government. We're going to start a war. Well, we'll start a war. You know, you hate Russia. We hate China. You know, it's like always on and on and on. And it's just like the more they compete, the more they look exactly the same. But in the middle of the rivalry, you look farther apart from your perspective. You're like, no way. I have nothing to do with the left. They do this. They do that. They do this. We don't do that, that, that. But from the big vantage point, you're like, well, yeah, I, I mean, I can see your point there. But the big picture, you look very similar. You know, you look almost like a, a monstrous double, like a, a, a blend, again, back to those gods. 
where you have half eagle, half lion, you know, this merger of two is, is what we see happening with the left and right. So how do you break that up? Well, it's a good question. There's a few things. Decentralizing power is one thing, you know, breaking things up so that the common object is not ultimate power or nothing at all. Breaking and decentralizing power structures to make them more uh, scattered apart. I mean, that's one thing. That's what the founders were trying to do, I guess. You know, they were trying to prevent that that lust for absolute power that's intrinsic in centralized states. And they, they didn't quite pull that off, I guess. But, uh, you know, there's there's different things that you can try to create. Private property, private contracts, so essential. I think voting, I think having a public governance model creates a constant state of undifferentiation. For example, like when you have a public park. Remember that Charlottesville riot or Charlottesville protest with the white nationalists? I remember a lot of people saying, I paid for that park and I don't want them to have the the, the freedom to, to do their nasty stuff at that park that I paid for as a taxpayer. Well, that's a state of undifferentiation, isn't it, right? There's no ability to excise yourself from that because you've got a shared common property that we've all been forced to pay for. And then the rules are that it has public access. And then all of a sudden we're like, well, wait a second. I don't want those people there. And then they might say, well, I don't want these types of people there or those types of people. there. Or you have the, you know, you have the drag queen story time at public libraries. And they say, wait a second. That's my pack. I'm paying for that public library. I don't want a drag queen with horns to be, you know, doing stuff like that and, and, and reading a storybook in front of a two-year-old or a three-year-old. That's not what I want to pay for. Why are you doing that? And that creates what? A crisis of undifferentiation. And that's the same thing with, uh, you know, welfare state and stuff like that, where it's like, wait a second, I'm paying so much taxes and then this person gets to live off of that, all these bonuses and gifts, and we can get this subsidy and that subsidy that creates a crisis of undifferentiation. Well, why am I working? Why am I putting myself through all this stress? Why am I putting up with my boss harassing me and humiliating me every time he sees me sleeping at the desk or whatever it is, you know? So we come up with all these narratives that are basically stressed because of, I mean, they're, they're basically stress that are manifested from undifferentiation. So it's a big topic in and of itself, but how do you, I mean, that's what they call the division of labor in, in, in the economy, right? They call it the division of labor. You have to have a certain role for, for people that they can play that provides a better a better system than having, you know, everybody do everything, right? Right. You can't make basketballs and make your clothes and cook the food and build your house and, you know, make your car. You can't do that. You need division of labor. And that's the good thing. That, that's an example of differentiation. Markets provide, if you allow markets to work, they provide a lot of incentive for healthy boundaries and differentiation. Well, you need what uh, Gary Chartier calls freed markets, which we don't have. Right, right. That's true. All right. I know we're running up against a a deadline here. I want to ask you a few questions, and these are just simple, kind of fun, short answer questions. Folks, let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. 
of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? Mm. Savory? Is that one of them? Is it what, what, sweet? sweet, salty, bitter, sour, or umami? What's the taste of like steak? I eat a lot of steak. Was that salty? Uh, probably umami because umami. The, what's your favorite food? Uh, well, right now I guess it would be ribeye. I've been eating those a lot. <laughs> what's your least favorite food? Um, well, recently I tried. Um, Spleen, because I've been doing ancestral eating, and that was extremely difficult to eat. So I'm going to go with that. I'm just curious, what animal? Uh, cow, beef. Yeah, that. Okay. Well, it's, spleen is a challenge. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. It had a muddy texture when I bit into it, and I, that was hard yeah. to swallow. Yeah, literally and figuratively, I'm sure. <laughs> what gets you excited? Uh, seeing how history and forces in history uh, provide us an opportunity to make a better future. Like once you see the patterns of history, looking at anthropology, looking at these things, it, it gives you this huge frontier perspective that there's so much that we can be doing. Like it's not, we're not at the end of history. I think we're at the beginning of history in some sense. Like there's so much that's left to be undone. I want to see, anti-gravity flying cars i want to see you know inner space travel intergalactic go going to different galaxies i want to see cures for all these diseases that afflict us i want to see all these things and i think we have that within us but we have to be able to have a sober perspective of where we came from as a species so that we can be self-aware about the mimetic conflicts that we fall into in the in the in the and the and we always we know that scapegoating happens, but we never want to admit when we're doing it ourselves. We always believe that the people that we hate and vilify are truly deserving of every little bit of venom that we you know think of spread to them or spill onto them. Right. What turns you off? I guess just seeing that the again I guess it's the same thing is that you you see how much potential humans could have, but. And, and how how simple some things seem to be, but yet how difficult it is to change human nature, including my own self. You know that you you like, wait a second, this makes sense. Why can't I keep up with, you know, actualizing the the the, the, pl the blueprint of my head about how to improve my own life or you know do something differently? Because it's hard to do. Yeah. What sound do you love? Sound. I like rain, you know, when it's raining at, and in the evening and you want to take a nap, you know, you, you go to sleep early, you know. That's a, that's a good sound. What sound do you hate? Uh, let's see. Well, you've got that, uh, you know, the classic, those things that are like the chalkboard being scraped, but there's something else that's like that that bothers me a lot. Do you know what I'm talking about? I can't remember what it is. The nails on the chalkboard is common. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. bother me, but I know that it makes people insane. Yeah, stuff like there's something else that does that, but I can't remember what it is. Usually it's, like it's a really high-pitched thing. For my daughter, it's yeah. the fork scraping on the plate. Yeah, that kind of a thing. Yeah, that bothers me. When people are forking around on their plate and just keep making that noise, yeah. scraping, 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 like, all right, did you get it yet? Did you get it on your fork yet? 
<laughs> oh, and 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 sometimes when you when people are allowed chewers at a meal, that's annoying too, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite food indulgence? I think uh, probably like a good ice cream, like homemade ice cream, you know? Mm, that's a good one. Raw milk and all that good stuff. So this mimetics is a giant topic. Do you have any book recommendations for people who are interested in learning more? Where do they start? Well, I always point people to read I See Satan Fall Like Lightning by Rene Girard, which okay. is an allusion to that quote that Jesus did that I was talking about. And um, and then I would recommend people go on YouTube or online and look up CBC Radio with Rene Girard. He passed okay. away a few years ago, uh, 2015. And um, but but you know before that he had done a, a five part interview with David Cayley of CBC Radio in Canada, and each part is an hour each, and he he totally lays out step by step his discovery, which has been considered, you know, he's been called a Copernicus for social science. He's been considered a Darwin for, for anthropology. So he's, he's going to be someone that I think he helps people really not be so upset about the things that they see because they realize, wait a second, there's nothing new under the sun. Maybe this isn't hopeless. Maybe we're not the first time to have the madness of crowds and mass hysteria. And maybe we'll get through this if we think and act in a right way and intentionally, you know, and, 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 and be the change, you know, such a stupid thing, but be the change that you want to see you. That's what Gerard points you back to. You can't complain about the world if you're not willing to model the contagious desire that is good. If you, if you forgive people when they insult you, that's a beautiful thing. You're, you're creating a ripple effect around your community with that because other people, you could just pass by them and you, you show confident uh, forgiveness for their insult. And that one moment, they carry that forward and they spread that desire to somebody else, maybe. And that and that helps relieve the problems in the community. And it's it's not so easy, but it's something that we can, we really can do, you know. And you know, and it is possible. And at some point, you almost make a person's life in that moment, and you don't think so, right? But they tell that story every Thanksgiving. Do you remember to tell you about the guy that did this thing? It's like, yeah, he told us last year, but. It's funny how how those little moments of graciousness can have a gigantic impact. Right. And, and you don't story, even know it. There's the story of Telemachus, the monk in the Roman Empire, who jumped into the gladiatorial games when they were fighting tooth and nail. And he said, stop in the name of God. And there was a few. He, I think he died. The story goes. He was murdered by the people fighting in the games. But the crowd was cheering for it or something. But later on, a few decades later, they actually ended the games, you know, and that so, you know, you can change the world in one moment. I mean, not that we're all supposed to shoot for that. But the point is, is. You can change history because. You know, when Jesus was in history, you know, when you go to the gladiatorial games, people were tearing each other apart and people were laughing and cheering that on. And that was the, the prevailing group think of the time. Someone's intestines are spilled out, and you're like, yay. Today, we have football games where we have simulated warfare, and we're worried about concussions. We're worried about how thick can we make the helmet so that we can protect them from concussions. And, you know, I ask people, do you think people cared about whether gladiators would have concussions back in the Roman Empire? You know, do, do you think that 
They were worried about how gladiators treated their girlfriends and spouses, the way we are concerned about that in modern NFL culture today. We're worried about, are we promoting violence? Can we, can we de-escalate violence? So you can see that in 2,000 years' time, in some way, we've made some progress, you know? Just in that little example of a shared communal ritual that used to be grotesque, overt warfare has now become simulated warfare. And it's even in its simulated form, we're still very sensitive about it not going too far, about it not being too barbaric. Right. So well, we, I'm just remembering Deacon Jones and Frank Gifford. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not an NFL fan, those names mean nothing to you. But right. man, oh, man, oh, man, it was it was some serious stuff back then. Yeah. Where can people find your work and how can they follow you? Well, I'm on uh uh, our website is aneighborschoice.com, and our radio show is on a couple affiliates in Florida. Um, and we also, uh, for I guess most of our audience, the best way would be just search for David Gornoski, my name, on your favorite podcast platform or YouTube, and uh, you'll be able to see. I have a daily show from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, Monday through Friday, and then we do a podcast about once a week. Uh, called Things Hidden, which is all of that's on the radio show and the podcast are all found on, you know, my podcast platform. Just search for David Gronowski on iTunes or wherever you, you listen to your podcast. Sweet. Well, I'll put a link to those things on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 131. All right. Well, thank you for your time this, well, morning to me, midday to you. I know you have uh, another thing to get to, so... I'm going to let you go do that, but I appreciate uh, making time for me today. It was a lot of fun, and you did a great uh, great interview. Very fun. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. David's links will be on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 131. I'll link to the book David recommended, as well as part one of the CBC series David mentioned. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and like it when you see it. Also, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. If you like the show, I would appreciate your support in the form of fiat currency through PayPal, Patreon, or Venmo. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher to have the episodes waiting for you. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.